The first thing is listen and listen to understand. The thing about people who are in underrepresented groups is a lot of times we don't necessarily feel seen or heard, right? And it's not always intentional, it's unconscious again because we don't always walk in with these built-in networks. So if you are a leader who wants to support employees in these underrepresented groups, reach out and listen. Don't assume that you know how they're feeling or what their experience is like listen and then acknowledge that their experience may be different than yours or even different than some of their peers are having who are not an underrepresented. Hello and welcome to Voices with Talking Talent, the podcast that explores the real issues people face in the workplace. This is a space to have the open and brave conversations that inspire change and spark action. We're Talking Talent, and every week we'll be joined by a different guest. Stay tuned for discussions on the issues that business leaders are trying to overcome and what the future looks like for truly diverse and inclusive organizations. Hello, today we're talking to Reno Sashteva about building and maintaining a diverse workforce. Reno is a DEI executive coach at Talking Talent. She has her own coaching company, and she's a professor. Yes, she's very, very busy. And today she's talking to us about diversity, equity, inclusion, and how that relates into the workforce. So Reino, first, I want to hear more about what you're doing. And you're a busy lady. So I want to hear all about the details and what experience you have in the DEI space. Yeah, absolutely, Andrea. And thank you so much for that introduction. I am busy. It's a good busy. I, I enjoy all of it and I love what I do. As you mentioned, I am a coach in the DEI space. And I think that's a very unique combination. I'm not the only one, of course, but that's something that, you know, previously I had been in the DEI space as a DEI strategist and leader for a large organization leading our DEI strategy within the, the geographic area that I covered and um, working with our leadership. And that was a, a great area to work in as a DEI practitioner. As a coach, I think what that added element brings in is to really bring in the human element in terms of working with people and helping to reach people's hearts and minds in this space, because ultimately making a shift through diversity, equity, and inclusion comes down to us as human beings and human behavior. So that's why I think that combination is really powerful. I love doing uh, this work in this space with talking talent and serving serving our clients uh, through that, as well as my individual clients. And of course, as you mentioned, I'm an adjunct professor and I create and teach diversity, equity, and inclusion courses for undergraduate business students at the University of Houston. That's awesome. So I love that you're really immersed in the field. Um, for teaching and coaching, can you tell the listener what the difference is? Oh, yeah, great question. You know, they're actually similar in a lot of ways, but in teaching, it's about conveying knowledge, right? And helping to educate somebody in an area that they're not familiar with. Coaching, on the other hand, is about recognizing that your client, your coaching client, has the answers. They are the subject matter experts of themselves, and it's working with them to help them uncover their own underlying belief systems, bringing the unconscious to the conscious, and then recognizing, you know, what are those unconscious beliefs? And especially in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, what beliefs do we hold about others who are different than us? What do, beliefs do we hold about ourselves and our own culture and, and how that shows up in the workplace? So coaching is very much 
a lot more personal and getting to those belief systems. There's a learning element to it because you learn about yourself. Um, and then of course with teaching, as I mentioned, that's about conveying knowledge in a subject matter area like DEI. Yeah. I love that. I love that definition that you gave. I think that sometimes people don't know the difference between getting a taught to them or having a coach to speak to them because it is very different. Let's start with why having a diverse workplace is so important. Renu, please tell us why this is so important for the staff in underrepresented groups and also for the companies. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the companies first. So companies have been increasingly focused on diversifying their workforce and hiring more underrepresented talent, meaning, um, you know, looking at the demographics of their workforce, seeing which groups are not well represented, whether that's on the basis of gender, like women, whether that's on the basis of race, ethnicity, certain groups that are not well represented in the workforce and wanting to increase that. There's There's been a lot of talk, there's a lot of studies out there around why this is good for business, right? Uh, The studies that show that businesses that have more diverse workforces, more diverse leadership teams are more profitable, they're more innovative, they can serve their customers better. But really, I feel strongly that it's time for us to go beyond the business case as to why this is important for companies. Of course, those are all there. We know that if most businesses, they are for-profit organizations, yes, we want to look at the bottom line. But there really gets down to an intrinsic question of values. Most businesses in this day and age are values driven organizations, or at least they are aspiring to be values-driven organizations. And when you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the societal correlation of this topic to what happens in society, this is a huge values-driven area of having the workforce of an organization, of a company, be reflective of the demographics of society, which most of them aren't at this point, right? If you look purely at numbers, and I'm a numbers person, and you look at the percentages, for example, based on race of percentages in the country, in the United States, if that's where you're watching, and then you compare it to the demographics of large organizations or even the leadership team of large organizations, they're still predominantly white male. Not all, but many, right? And so that's where, you know, in terms of for businesses and getting down to being values-driven and why, we and, and knowing their why, it's really about thinking about, well, why aren't they reflective of the society at large? And what more can organizations be doing to be reflective of that and to be more inclusive of these groups? So that for organizations, that's, I think, a very important reason to be looking at diversifying their workforce. For people, employees of underrepresented groups, why is it important to work for a company that has a diverse workforce. When you are part of an underrepresented group, and I have been there as an Indian American woman, and you come into an organization and you come into a team meeting or your department or whatever, you are acutely aware of being a minority in the room, right? You look around and you realize that you may be the only person who looks like you in the room, right? You may be the only person in the room who has the lived experience of being a woman or being, you know, a racial minority. And you kind of, there's this intrinsic sense of isolation that comes with it, right? And so the more diverse a workforce is, the more as people from underrepresented groups come into the workforce, they will find others who look like them, right? They will find others who have similar life experiences, 
not the same, but similar, and they will start to feel more of a sense of community. Now, with that said, that doesn't mean that people who are in underrepresented groups should only connect with others who are underrepresented groups. Obviously, you want the organization to, you know, for everybody to work together and everybody to be cohesive, but it mitigates that sense of loneliness, that sense of isolation that somebody can feel when they come into an organization, into a team, and they look around and they see nobody who looks like them, nobody who identifies like them. And you get this sense of, well, I don't know if anybody will get it. Anybody will get how I feel. And so that's why it's really important for organizations to diversify. But I will say diversity isn't the only answer. And that's why we talk about equity and inclusion too, because it's not enough to just diversify the workforce. Can you expand on that? So equity and inclusion, what is the difference between that and just diversifying the workforce? Absolutely. So diversity is about the demographics, right? Pure and simple, it's the numbers. Diversity means how diverse is your workforce when you look at the demographics of your workforce. Inclusion, the I of DEI, is the culture. It's about whether you have created a sense of belonging for all of your employees, not just certain groups. So you don't want the in-groups and the out-groups, people who feel like they're part of it and people who don't. There's a really um, well-known quote by Verna Myers that I like a lot where um, she said, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. I actually modify that a little bit. So I like to say diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is about jumping out onto the dance floor and dancing like it's your own party, right? It's, It's really feeling that sense of belonging that you feel safe, that psychological safety to be yourself, to share all aspects of who you are with your colleagues, with your coworkers at work, to be able to feel empowered, to share your ideas, and to make mistakes without fear of retribution. That's really creating that sense of belonging, to feel like you're part of the team. Um, And then equity is more about systems. So we talk about equity versus equality a lot. And equity is about mitigating, equality is about giving everybody the same thing, right? Like, okay, treating everybody exactly the same but we're not all exactly the same. And because we live in a society where systemic inequities exist, when you come into the workforce, those inequities come come through as well, right? So when you are a business, it's really thinking about giving people what they need. I once heard somebody who's a parent use this example. He has three kids and he said, I can't give all my kids exactly the same thing. They're very unique individuals, right? So I need to know who they are and give them what they each need from me, right? And I think that applies, even though companies aren't parents, right? And there's not meant to be a paternal or parental approach to it. But at the same time, when you think about equity, it's about recognizing the needs of individuals within your organization and giving people what they need to be successful, even if that's different from the person next to them. So that's one element of equity. The other element of equity that's really important that that needs to be looked at is any um, systems and processes within the organization. So like promotions, compensation, you know, deciding at the end of the year, you know, when you do performance reviews, who gets what rating at the end of the year, because we know unconscious biases come into play. And this is not about unconscious bias. And most companies have done a lot of training around this, but unconscious biases can impact equity and those decisions that the, you know, that we're making about who do we promote, who do we pay more to, who do we give the better rating to? And that's why that's another lens that we have to apply to equity. And when you have a diverse workforce and you're diversifying, it becomes even more important because people want to be recognized for the contributions they're making to the organization. 
Yeah, for sure. So what do leaders and managers really need to do to increase and sustain diversity in the workplace and also equity? So I know that you, the way that you explained it, which I loved, I'd like to speak on both of them. So how can leaders and managers really need to increase and sustain diversity? And then also once people are there, how can they make them feel more included? So it's an inclusive organization. Yeah, it's a great question. And I love that you honed in on leaders and managers. I want to speak to that part of the question first, because really when it comes to creating a sense of inclusion, it's not the leaders sitting at the top of the organization who do that, right? They can set the tone, they can set the agenda to say, hey, this is a priority and we want to do it. But if you think about you as an employee, right, or me as an employer, anybody else, your day-to-day experience of how you feel about the company and your job and that sense of belonging has to do with your your manager, right? The people you report to, the team that you work with day in and day out, that's where that sense of inclusion starts. So a lot of times companies who are focusing on DEI, they're kind of sitting at the 30,000 foot view, right? Because they're creating a strategy as they should, and they're coming, you know, they're creating all these elements and ideas and processes and initiatives, those are all wonderful. But really, as an organization, if you want to embed this into your culture and you want it to be sustainable, you really have to get those line managers on board, right? The people who are working with the employees day in and day out, um, who are creating the experience that they are having at work, right? And that's where it starts. And I touched on some of these elements of the how, right, in terms of creating a sense of psychological safety. What does that mean? That means creating a space where people feel like they can be themselves, bring their whole selves to work, right? That phrase gets thrown around a lot, but what does that mean? It means being able to speak openly about your identity without fear of being judged, right? Without fear of people treating you differently or giving, making a sense of, we call it othering, right? Making you feel like you're different somehow. Yes, you are different but not making it feel like a negative thing, right? Recognizing that we're all different and sincerely wanting to learn about those differences. That's what helps create a sense of psychological safety. Also, as I mentioned, giving people room to make mistakes. This is an interesting one because it can go to a broader leadership session too, right? Of how you lead and do your people feel like you can make mistakes. But when somebody is in in an underrepresented group, mistakes tend to carry more weight. There's a higher fear of retribution because quite honestly, throughout our lives, it has felt like for many people, I won't speak for everyone, but for many people, when you are in an underrepresented group, it feels like mistakes carry more weight. And not only do they carry more weight, but then in some ways it's indicative of your group as a whole, that you're somehow representing your group as a whole. And if you fail, then that's going to, you know, create a negative impression for other people like you in those minds. And that can, you know, take away from that sense of psychological safety. So making it clear as a leader, as a manager, that it's okay to make mistakes and we're all here to learn and grow. And the other thing I would say is having open dialogue around what is going on in the world and, you know, and, you know, when bad things are happening, but also celebrating. So, you know, we know that there's a lot of difficult things happening in the world. And I'll give you an example at my previous employer, you know, when there were a series of race-related, so white police officers who had killed Black men and women, we had candid conversations around how people were feeling. And those were difficult. 
And, you know, the first time we had them in 2016, that was probably one of the first times that many people had participated in a conversation like that. Because for so long, it was taboo to talk about race, religion, and politics at work, right? It was the unspoken, unwritten rule. But the reality is, people were hurting. People are still hurting by what's going on in the world. We're in the middle of a pandemic, right? We have to be able to talk about these things. And leaders and managers have the unique ability to create a forum and create an environment where people feel comfortable and safe to talk about these things. And then, like I said, the good things too. Recently, uh, I'm Hindu and I just celebrated Janamashtami. And I know I shared that at work with my colleagues and some of them didn't know what it, what it was. And, you know, it was an opportunity to talk about it, but I felt safe to do so. I felt safe to share something about me and my religion, which is personal to me. And it is all about creating that kind of an environment. So I want to dive in deeper here. How does that, what does that look like? So in 2016, you said that you were at an organization where these conversations were being had openly and you felt safe. Did the manager initiate it? Did the, the staff initiate it? I'd like to like know the process. Should they, should the managers come in and say, okay, this just happened in the news. Let's all sit down and talk about it. Or is there a, a, a broader strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a couple of different ways to do it. And I actually, I, I, I created a framework that I use and I teach in my class called SHARE, which I can walk through um, quickly. The S stands for state the intention of the conversation, right? And this can apply. So to go back to your question, Andrea, when we had those conversations, they were very structured. So they were facilitated. I was one of the facilitators as well as one of the partners who was leading the office and another, our HR leader. And we facilitated this conversation, right? We created the space for people to talk. What I mean by facilitated was we set the stage for it and then we let people share, right, and talk. But there's also an unstructured way to do it. You don't always have to gather people in a room and make it a big formal thing. As we know, water cooler conversations happen, although in the virtual world that we, we currently um, live in, uh, that doesn't always pan out right that way, but we don't have the water cooler conversations. But when you hop onto a meeting, the first five minutes or the last five minutes, People talk sometimes about what's going on in the world around them, right? So, you know, the, the stating the intention of the conversation of the share, that very much about it can be formally done or it can be informally done if you feel like the conversation is derailing to say, okay, hold on, let's, let's, let's get clear about why we're talking about this and what the intention of the conversation is. The reason that step is really important is, you know, is because People need to be on the same page. And I always say it's dialogue, not debate. That is a really crucial distinction to make because all too often, especially the polarized world that we're living in today, things feel like a debate. We're trying to convince someone else to our point of view. But really in the workplace for it to be a respectful and meaningful conversation, it needs to be about dialogue. For me to understand how you are viewing the world and what you are experiencing and for you to understand how I'm viewing the world and what I'm experiencing. I do not need to convince you to my point of view. That's not the goal of the conversation. And conversely, you don't need to convince me. Now, if we shift our, our understanding or our thinking because of that conversation, 
great, right? But that's not the purpose. And that's why that S is really important. In the interest of time, I won't go through all of share, but the other one that I do want to touch on the other letter is the R. And that is about respecting each other's truth. And that ties to what I just shared. It's really important at the start of these conversations, if you are the facilitator or the leader who's holding that base, to make it clear to everybody to respect each other's truth. Because the way you see things is your truth. The way I see things is my truth. They may be different. That's truth with a lowercase t because for both of us, that is our truth. And then there's the truth with a capital T, like the earth is round, right? Those indisputable proven facts. That's different. That's the stuff that's evidence-based, science-based, et cetera. But when it comes to our belief systems, recognize that what you believe is your truth and what I believe is my truth. And for each of us, it's true but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a universal truth. Yes. Okay. I love that. So if people want to reach out to you and learn more about share, where can they find you online? They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a pretty distinctive name. I don't know how many other Rainu such devas out are out there, but um, you can search for talking talent or university of Houston, and I will pop up with my name. Awesome. I, I know people are going to want, want to know the rest. So I wanted to make sure that they get that opportunity to talk to you directly. So how does hiring, recruiting, and onboarding factor into all this? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about the employee life cycle, right, when an employee comes into an organization, it's, it's a circle, right? And it's basically, it starts with the recruiting and the hiring and the onboarding. And then you go on through that circle in terms of development growth, and then hopefully not coming to offboarding, but that's that end of the cycle, right? Hiring and recruiting are at the beginning. If you want to create a diverse workforce and bring in more employees from underrepresented groups, it starts with the hiring. And what I would say for companies to really think about is how are you attracting that talent? You can ask any recruiter today. It is an incredibly competitive field for talent, especially with the great resignation going on right now in 2021, right? It's an incredibly competitive field for talent. It's even more competitive for people who are in underrepresented groups because most companies are trying to diversify their workforces right now. So what is going to make people who are in underrepresented groups want to come work for you? Do you have a brand as an organization that to, to be an inclusive company, to be a company that cares about these issues, not just for the bottom line, but somebody who sincerely cares about doing the right thing? We have a very savvy workforce out there, right? And with things like LinkedIn that we just talked about and the internet, it's very easy for people to connect with one of your current employees or do research on an organization. And so you really, as a company, you have to live your values to be able to attract underrepresented talent. Then comes the onboarding piece. Onboarding is critical. I, I, was, I spent years in HR and we talked a lot about onboarding because onboarding really sets the foundation for an employee's experience at your organization. Just like we say first impressions matter, onboarding is the first impression an employee really gets of the company. Hiring and recruiting, they kind of know they're being wined and dined and all of that. But when they come on as, a, as an employee of the organization, that's when they get a sense to really know what it feels like to work for your company. And so during that onboarding process, especially for people who are in underrepresented groups, again, those who may look around in the virtual meeting room or in the actual meeting room and not see many people who look like them, it's critical that you give them a sense of welcome and belonging, right? That they are reached out to. I've heard stories of people who on their first day 
nobody talked to them. Nobody reached out to them, right? And, and especially in this virtual environment, it's not going to happen organically. If people are in the office, yes, yeah, somebody is going to walk by their desk, say hello. Oh, you're the new person, you know, welcome. That doesn't happen in a virtual environment. So you have to be really intentional about helping people feel welcome, especially if they don't have a built-in network already. That's the other thing for people from underrepresented groups. A lot of times, and there's this is a much longer conversation around systemic inequities and all that, but a lot of times when they come into an organization, they don't know other people. And then when you have people who are in well-represented groups, they often come in and they already have a built-in network. They know so-and-so and so-and-so already. That's not the case always with people in underrepresented groups. So as an organization, as an HR team, or whoever is responsible for your onboarding, you have to think about being really intentional to help these people feel welcome and help connect them to a network when they come in the door. If you have employee resource groups, let them know about those so they can find other like-minded people from similar identity groups with shared backgrounds that they can connect with. But really introduce them to your organization and also to your DEI efforts so they know how they can get involved if they want to. Love that. Love it. So I have one last question, Renu, for you. What are the best ways to support employees in minority groups? Ah, yes, I, I, I love that question. And of course, it's never going to be an exhaustive list, but I know you said best ways. So what I'll share, the first thing is listen and listen to understand. The thing about people who are in underrepresented groups is a lot of times we don't necessarily feel seen or heard, right? And it's not always intentional. It's unconscious again, because we don't always walk in with these built-in networks. So if you are a leader who wants to support employees in these underrepresented groups, reach out and listen. Don't assume that you know how they're feeling or what their experience is like listen and then acknowledge that their experience may be different than yours or even different than some of their peers are having who are not an underrepresented. That really helps you get to know who your employees are at a human level. Because even if people are in underrepresented groups, it's important to remember no group is homogenous, right? Even those who are in the well-represented groups, they're not homogenous. Everybody is different. And so we can't make assumptions that, oh, all women are like this, right? Or all Indian people are like this. You really have to get to know your employees on an individual level. And that is what makes them feel seen and feel heard. The other thing, and I've touched on this a lot, but I'll, I'll say it one more time because it's so important, is to create that psychologically safe environment. That is what helps your employees thrive. That is what helps them contribute at their highest levels. Um, and that's ultimately best for them and best for your organization too. And then third, giving them opportunities to learn and grow. And, and it sounds kind of obvious, but at the same time, there are numerous studies and, you know, everything's based in studies because I teach and I love research, but there are many, many studies and qualitative anecdotes and all of that that talk about how because of unconscious bias, people who are in leadership positions often give the plum opportunities, the really good opportunities to others who are like them. That's similarity bias, right? And so people who are in underrepresented groups aren't getting those same opportunities because again, they don't have that built-in network. Leaders don't look like them. And so they're not 
thought of when those opportunities come around. So, you know, as a leader, to make sure you're supporting employees who are in these underrepresented groups, make sure that you're giving them good opportunities to grow and develop. They have the talent or else they wouldn't be there, but they need the opportunity to nurture and grow that talent. And so it's really important to ensure your processes are fair and that bias is not influencing them. And the last thing I'll say here is be an ally. There's a lot of discussion around allyship. We actually do, you know, do trainings on this topic at Talking Talent and, and workshops on this topic because it's so critical. But allyship is to really walk beside people who are in underrepresented groups, take on their struggles as their own. So this is kind of like that next level stuff, right? But it's something we can all do because, you know, because of things in the workplace that happen like unconscious biases, microaggressions, etc. employees who are in underrepresented groups need support. They need allyship. Absolutely, they are strong and they can stand up for themselves, but it can also get exhausting. And to know that there are people within the organization who stand with them, who can help speak up or elevate their voice when it needs to be elevated, that's a really powerful thing to do. And so I highly encourage anyone who's interested in the topic of allyship to to learn more, reach out to me, reach out to Talking Talent, because it really is, you know, as an organization, if you are sincerely dedicated to, to advancing in this area, allyship is, is crucial and it's crucial for leaders to engage in. This was such great advice, Renu. I really appreciate your time. We definitely have to have you back for more. I just think the work that you're doing is amazing. Um, I've heard from people that have been coached by you how amazing you are and how you've really made a difference in their lives, not only their work lives, but their personal lives. So we're glad that you exist and we're glad that you were here for, um, with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrea. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Talking Talent. We're a coaching organization that helps you develop, advance, and retain your talent. Together, we can create a more inclusive culture where your people and your organization can thrive. You can visit us online at talking-talent.com. That's talking-talent.com. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.